Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, March 2nd, and today we have an interview with IT Investment Talk. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We've been waiting on this one for a while. I think it's been, we've been trying to get him on the show for a while, right? Yeah, for about a month we were planning on how to do this, so exciting. I mean, we talked PayPal, we talked Match Group, two stocks he knows a lot about. Um, yeah. yeah, his yeah. investing style is similar to ours. Definitely. We went we went thorough, like kind of deep dives on both PayPal and Match Group. Even uh, moved on over to Bumble and Square a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was that format was great. I think that's kind of something we're trying to repeat. You know. Yeah. So definitely. Uh, but before we get to that, we have our stories for the week, and I'm going to be talking Buffett's letter. Uh, what do you have? Yeah, I know people wanted to talk about in our poll about on Twitter about Arc Invest, but we're going to hold back that. Uh, a lot of, I guess, not really. get a lot of flack. Yeah, so. well, yeah. So or we'll talk something more neutral, which is Walmart getting into fintech. Very interesting developments from them that could shake up some of the financial industry. So excited yeah. to talk. And then, as always, current state of FinTwit, uh, hot water. Buy, sell, hold, anecdotal evidence. But before we get to the show, sales pitch time, and it's big. New recs. Huge. March Yesterday. recommendations. Yesterday, new recommendations. I thought they came out this. Oh, right, because of uh, you're probably listening to this on Tuesday. But yes, mm-hmm. on Monday they came out. And what was your favorite? My favorite, I will say Matt's, because usually he's probably got a very similar style to what we do. Uh, I, like the, I like his company. Uh, but I will say that all the picks are great for different styles. I mean, you got Manisha and Max kind of with, you know, yeah. those scientific picks. Dan has his certain style. Simon. He's, Dan's are always consumer focused. And I, okay, I, I think if I had to pick one, I might go either Simon's or Dan's. Dan's really interesting. Um, because yeah, it's one that's is, like his. totally overlooked and always has incredible returns. So. Yep. And then if we want to talk about what their returns are, they've almost hit forty percent uh, versus the S and P five hundred. So that's amazing returns over the past year. This is their one year anniversary. So congrats to them. Ooh. Wow. Uh, yeah. So we fi- they finally hit one calendar year, forty percent returns versus so, the S and P five hundred. Fantastic numbers. We got to say though, if you want to celebrate their yeah. one year, make sure you sign up using the code CCM at checkout because you get ten dollars off the first month and it's usually seventeen so it's only seven bucks for your first month and you can look at all those yearly recs looks pretty nice but yeah perfect timing to start out now if you're going to start out you know with seven investing or you're planning on doing it there's no better time than right now okay that was our sales pitch we are going to uh get to the show here you go welcome to chit chat money on this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with Buffett's annual letter. Uh, I've got a few quotes, a few anecdotes. It's going to be shorter than probably your story, but uh, I don't know, because it feels weird to judge, <laughs> to <laughs> it like, does. criticize the small things for Buffett because he's been doing it for a long time. But uh, I'll start with a quote here. The best results occur at companies that require minimal assets to conduct high margin businesses and offer goods or services that will expand their sales volume with only minor needs for additional capital. 
Yeah. Doesn't it seem, like I said, <laughs> we we probably are in no place to criticize, but doesn't it seem a little counterintuitive to some of his businesses, which are pretty asset heavy? Yeah, it is interesting because I've heard this take many times from him and other people, and it makes sense in theory, right? But it seems a lot more disruptible than, say, an Amazon or a Walmart, right? And those are capital-intensive businesses. I don't know. You know, the the moat around some of these low, uh, what would you call it, asset light businesses seems low, and they seem rarer. Now, I would argue a company like Google, well, they're a little bit capital-intensive with servers, but a company like EA, Electronic Arts, or Activision Blizzard, yeah, those are capital light, and they have a moat from their brands and per- partnerships and stuff like that, but it seems rare and not as solid as a moat from someone that's more capital-intensive, but yeah, you, again, you got to watch out... Uh, where someone invests versus what they say. Um, yeah, you know. yeah, agreed. Um, another anecdote here: Berkshire acquired BNSF Railways in 2010 for 44 billion, I believe. Uh, since then, it has paid out 41 billion in dividends to Berkshire. Pretty nice. Pretty yeah. nice. It makes me like it makes me want to become a dividend truther. I know sometimes. Uh, Altria, put your whole portfolio in Altria. No. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that. But, yeah, uh, it's so str- it, it is strange because you know Berkshire doesn't offer a dividend, but obviously it's for a different reason because he trusts his own capital allocation skills more than the it, shareholders, or the shareholders haven't trusted him with their money. Yeah, that's just it's got to be so nice to have something that gives you four or five billion in operating income a year, and then you just can rely on that. Like <laughs> this business may not grow or may grow at a small rate. But man, is it going to just, it's just going to give you money. And then you can use that money. The holding company structure, it, it, it amazes me every time because of how it's not as like, I think he may have been the, the one to come up with it. It's, it's a nice life. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. All right. Another quote here. This one's more about the bonds uh, and interest rates. It says, in certain large and important countries, such as Germany and Japan, investors earn a negative return on trillions of dollars of sovereign debt. Fixed income investors worldwide, whether pension funds, insurance companies, or retirees, face a bleak future. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think everyone is sort of – I don't think that's a super rare take, but – yeah. Um, what a, bonds are a bad place to be. <laughs> uh, I will emulate whatever what Charlie Munger says. Nothing to add. No, nothing okay. to add here. He's right. totally right. They have also spent nearly $9 billion buying Verizon stock. This was announced, obviously, prior to the letter. But does this surprise you? Uh, no, does not surprise me. Feels right up Buffett's alley, actually. Yeah, feels very, yeah. I mean, he loves businesses that have regulatory moats. And, I mean... But this is another capital-intensive business, correct? Right? Or am yeah. I wrong? I, I think it's... Remember in like 1999 or 2000, people were like, why aren't you touching any of the communications businesses? Shouldn't you be invested in them? And he's like, yeah, you know, that's just not what we focus on. And now he's <laughs> yeah. 20 years later. Why aren't you invested in Lemonade? They're disrupting your business. Geico. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, hey, don't bash lemonade. Bash lemonade. I used lemonade the other day, and it is a sleek little thing. I well, mean, I'm not sure. 80 times sales. Makes sense. Yeah, that part maybe 
It's a little crazy, but I'll, I'll move on. They own $120 billion worth of Apple stock. For reference, the market cap of Berkshire is $580 billion. Um, so it makes up about 20 22% of the market cap. Do you think they have maybe a little too much exposure to Apple? Do you care? I don't care about I mean, that. They've trimmed, right? Yeah, they did. I mean, whatever on that. Uh, definitely one of the best trades of all time, for sure. They had a song, I mean, nominally best trade of all time. But he doesn't know tech. He, yeah, he doesn't know tech. Apple's not even tech sometimes. It's it's almost fake luxury. Consumer do. goods. It's, 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 I think it's more consumer goods for sure, because like their tech is always worse than their competitors. I just imagine like the Samsung meeting every time they're like, guess what, guys? We got a better camera. We got we got everything's faster than the Apple phone. Like I bet this thing's selling like hotcakes, and I'm like, nah, that one's got an Apple on the back of it. Uh, the, the iPhone, like. Hey, I'm sitting here staring at a Mac. Well, it doesn't always work that well, but uh, <laughs> it's got an Apple on the I back. I like it. Uh, the uh, but. Yeah, best trade of all time. One, Roaring Kitty with GameStop. Two, Apple. Apple with, and then, then George Soros taking down the British pound. Those yeah. would be the big three. <laughs> okay, they repurchased 5% of their shares. They now have $138 billion of insurance flow. Do you see him doing anything with that flow anytime soon? I mean, I don't know. Repurchasing that, like... 5% is what? Like $25, $30 billion? I, if you're a sure... If I was a shareholder in Berkshire, I would be applauding this 5% rate of repurchases. That I mean, that just seems, over the course of a decade, that can be so meaningful. Yeah. And man, if they're going to discount the value of all their holdings, why not? Yeah, and he went long-winded onto why he likes buybacks, and it made me feel much better about owning <laughs> Dropbox. The, so. you, you, yes, yes, for sure, for sure. And you got the engine of Apple. Buying back shares and then Berkshire buying it's like a double buyback. I mean, I would sell it's an LBO I would, on LBO. <laughs> well, Berkshire LBO doesn't squared. have well, Berkshire doesn't have much debt, but Apple does. But the uh, I guess that's true. <laughs> I, I bet I would just salivate if I owned all that much Apple and they were buying back stock, and then I was buying back my own stock. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, uh, last quote. Um, Actually, sorry, no, a few more quotes. Uh, in no way do we think that Berkshire shares should be repurchased at simply any price. I emphasize that point because American CEOs have an embarrassing record of devoting more company funds to repurchases when prices have risen than when they have tanked. Our approach is exactly the reverse. My question is, do you think too many executives just use buybacks as like, uh, well, we have cash, we got to do something with it, regardless of share price? Yeah, I am not a fan of when they just seem to put it on autopilot. Uh, but if the you know way like all right, if the business is really steady, unless the valuation is just so extreme, it's probably value accretive. But yeah, I do get bugged on autopilot, especially when they turn autopilot off only when the shares drop like thirty percent. That people do that. You would think that they wouldn't, but then. You know, we all know what happens during bear in the markets. People get spooked, and uh, yeah, a lot of people cut them a, in March. Yeah, which that, that would, was a little different because of it's a, a lot of well, for some businesses, like they had li real liquidity issues. But yeah, some of them cut it, and they didn't need to. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm. Which is when they could have really used it. The, uh, yeah, that's a big. Uh, you can really. I don't know. It kind of kind of weed out management that way. No, I wouldn't say necessarily management. The CFO, CFO. Yeah. All right. Uh, last quote here at Berkshire. We have been serving hamburgers and Coke for fifty six years. Uh, there was like a Phil Fisher, I think, uh, quote about like 
making sure you, your shareholders know what they're getting, uh, whether it's a cheap burger and Coke or extravagant meals, that kind of thing. And so he said, right. at Berkshire, we have been serving hamburgers and Coke for 56 years. We cherish the clientele this fair has attracted. The tens of millions of other investors and speculators in the United States and elsewhere have a wide variety of equity choices to fit their taste. They will find CEOs and market gurus with enticing ideas. If they want price targets, managed earnings, and stories, they will not lack suitors. Technicians will confidently instruct them as to what some wiggles on a chart portrend for a stock's next move. The calls for action will never stop. Well uh, written, and couldn't I, agree mean, I don't think he'll ever start stop bashing active trading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like or hyper hyperactive trading. Uh, yeah. Nothing to add there. Nothing to add there. Okay, Charlie. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I just I, I love doing that. Overall thoughts on the annual letter. Uh, mm. I know he got slack from some clickbait article for being tone deaf. Tone since deaf. Yeah. Apparently. Buffett is now the spokesperson for all things social problems. Yeah, I can't wait for his appearance on The View. Should be fun. <laughs> I don't know. That stuff is just ridiculous. He's an investor. Who cares? But last thought, only last thought I have is if you read it and you see all the investments they're making for the energy subsidiary, I'd say my hot take is that they're probably doing more for the energy infrastructure of the United States than someone like Tesla. I think, and they're it's not bragging about it. I would ask you... Uh, Reevaluate what they're actually doing. Like our our sports cars take a lot of energy to make batteries and stuff like that. Or is getting the infrastructure actually set what's more meaningful? They're investing tens of billions of dollars into it. Um, yeah. yeah. Before we go bashing Buffett for being an old timer, I mean, they're he is doing a lot in terms of renewable energy. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. Let's not bash him for that. Uh, unless the guy basically went zero to what is it a hundred billion dollars and he's giving all the charity like that's the uh, yeah that was the big thing a lot of people were commenting on it like oh he wasn't acutely aware of all the social injustices if anything uh, if only he had focused <laughs> yeah. more like the gates foundation if, oh, he, if he could maybe get involved with that somehow yeah this um <laughs> People are going insane. I don't know. He I mean, also know. had the wherewithal to recognize that maybe he doesn't want to do it on his own, so he'll give it to someone that can. Yeah, yeah. He's very good at... I would rather take that than someone who tries without no, with knowing that someone else can do it better. Yeah, but did he pump GameStop, buy call options, and then say he was donating it to the Barstool Fund? No. <laughs> so he's a total loser. He doesn't He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. There. Were, yeah. <laughs> Once again, sorry if we were triggering people, but uh, that's our take on that. That is, yeah, that is our take. All right, a little more exciting stuff. Walmart getting into finance. Yeah, so this one, we'll keep it short. Uh, There's not much news. It's just a lot of rumors, and Walmart actually decided to poach two of Goldman Sachs executives, uh, Omar Ishmael and David Stark, who both work at Goldman's commercial banking division. So that was kind of the big news. Like, well, why is Walmart hiring some people from Goldman? That doesn't make sense. But it is a part of Walmart's management's Sorry, Walmart's push to get a, quote, super app for payments to try to create an end-to-end product for its core customers. Kind of coincidence we talked about uh, with IT, PayPal doing that as well, or they're launching something later this year or sometime soon. Uh, Walmart has also created a fintech startup in partnership with Ribbit Investments, which is a venture firm. And they're going to, quote, create a unique and affordable financial products for customers and employees. First question, this seems like an easy slam dunk for Walmart. What goes wrong here outside of execution? 
So I don't quite understand it. They just want some super app, financial super app? No, I mean, it's kind of, you know, they'll provide consumer banking products and stuff like that to customers, employees. You know, you already have locations. Seems very easy for their core customers. What do you think? Yeah, I just, when I always feel wary whenever I think Walmart getting into something that's sort of younger and sleeker. Ah, they're get, Walmart Plus has been great. They've done well with e-commerce, though, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if they can get it right, it'll be big. I still don't understand this exactly what the app's supposed to do. Well, just think of it like a... Like a checking account? Don't overthink it, yeah. Don't overthink it. Just why consumer financial move? services. Yeah, I guess I don't know why people would move their money to Walmart's consumer banking service. Well, they'll because they'll be able to do partnerships with all the stuff they sell in the store. So it's also the, it's the cash app. Con, I mean, with their own boosts. Sure, but they can also do a lot of other stuff. Like uh, I don't know, they have pharmacies. I think they're launching some healthcare stuff. There's a lot of ways you can do it. I mean, you could okay. have integrations with Walmart Plus. Plus, you have those locations. There's a lot of the country that still runs and needs cash. Um, you have those locations, and a lot of Walmart's customers. I don't know. Just make it a, you know a lot easy for them. Uh, second question though. And this kind of reminds me of some of the mergers that happen during speculative bubbles that can kind of be an indicator of a capitulation from legacy companies. Why wouldn't Walmart just go out and buy SoFi and supercharge them? Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's true. They probably would have to pay a premium right now, but... Uh, <laughs> Quite, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. They, they, do, they seem to do okay when they do stuff organically, right? That's E-commerce, true. they did well. And they bought Jet.com, and that was kind of a mistake, even though it turned into Walmart.com a bit. Yeah, and I, I guess the more that I think about it now, a consumer finance app for typical Walmart goers seems synergistic, even though I <laughs> yeah. know that's an overused term. Like, yeah, I can definitely see the synergies there and why people would use it. I'm yeah. not sure they need to go out and buy something people already use yeah that's going to make it probably even tougher to explain the narrative if they just go here keep your cash in this app and then you can get deals within the store yeah you got to connect it to the store somehow i'm not sure exactly how they would do it i mean the people that are within the company probably know a lot more ways to get everything going but what kind of products do you think they could offer i I was thinking like you know they could do buy now pay later basically integrated for walmart plus and stuff like that they could do short-term lending that isn't predatory because you know people got to get their goods and services if they know they're part of whatever Walmart's bank. That is true. They can really get better rates on that because a lot of people out there they have problems with cash flow, and if they just break that timing up, that's why people go to loan sharks and stuff. If Walmart could get that into a more, I know uh, the pred- yeah. less predatory. You know, I guess the payday loans. I've always had an issue with the payday loans from the lending side. Just that, like, I guess if, okay, if someone's in the store and they're, like, $20 short, I'm sure there's no problem in lending to them at 5% interest. But it, uh, I don't know. Like, is that really the crowd you want to be lending to? Well, they need, I mean, it's better, than, it's, the, it's better than 100% at the loan sharks. That's fair. You can give better rates. I mean. Buy now, pay later seems interesting. There are a lot of different things. I see probably the best avenue for customer attraction is probably in-store discounts like yeah. keeping it like cash app boosts but just use it for walmart products walmart plus too right yeah yeah and does walmart have their own little premium brand i assume they do 
Eh, I don't know. I, I guess don't think so. I wouldn't call anything premium in the stores. Yeah, they're not going for premium. They're going for... Affordable. Affordable. I think they got to have their, their own, own stuff. I, there's probably Walmart investors listening to us right now like, oh, you idiots. You don't know yeah. about that. But we don't know much about Walmart, the company, the ins and outs of it. So I don't know. I think... I do like the loan idea just because, I don't know, serving as like... People usually use payday loans for what? Trying to... They're just trying to stem. Yeah, they're trying to get like you know short-term purchases that they need. Yeah, it's just stemming the the like if someone has cash flow issues, it just helps with that. And Mm -hmm. you know that type of stuff could really help if you know what kind of credit. Uh, Now flipping it around, do you see any big threats? I mean, PayPal might be a little bit in trouble here, not entirely. you know who they're going to compete with and who yeah, they could potentially take out? I mean, it's probably consumer banks, like someone like, I don't know, you know, like the consumer side of Bank of America or something like that. That could be a big threat to this. I don't think yeah. someone like Venmo or Cash App's really threatened because they're really going after people like us who are 20-year-olds in the um, cities. Mm. And it's a little different than the Walmart demographic, but it'd probably be consumer banks, I'd say. Thinking from a consumer perspective, I think the most important thing they could do is instant deposit to Walmart's app, uh, whatever this ends up being. Because I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that aren't just keeping money in the Walmart app, but are sending money to it when they need it. So okay, who would they compete with on that? They're probably not, I don't know, they're probably not stealing a whole bunch of money from traditional banks. I would say they do compete more with Square Cash App because really? what do you use Cash App for? Boosts? I just use it for. I spend with it. I don't know. I just use the card. But don't you usually use it for boosts too? Isn't that kind of one of the big features as to why you're there? Yeah, but I'm thinking like because they have those grocery store discounts on Boost, so it's like if Walmart can offer better discounts, you know, that's sort of who they're going after. Yeah, but I would say Cash App. Uh, maybe yeah, but. The real, like, most people are using bank accounts at Bank of America or Wells Fargo. Yeah, I just don't see it as Chase. a place where. Wouldn't you want to change? I'm wrong, but I don't see it as a place where people store a whole bunch of money in there. Well, if you can. It's on like a per need basis. Well, basically, if you can replicate your Walmart, or sorry, whatever account you have at any of these banks, if Walmart can replicate that and you shop at Walmart all the time, and use it for a ton of stuff, a lot of your purchases, wouldn't you rather switch it over to Walmart? Yeah, but no one ever does. <laughs> Don't I'd you think? <laughs> I mean, it feels like it's so hard to pull people away from their legacy banks, no matter what, no matter Maybe. how valuable the other offering is. Well, it's got to be a good value proposition, but we'll see. I think that's, I don't know, I think that's the biggest threat. Yeah, it could be viable. Um, current state of Fintwit, you have anything else? Uh, nothing else from Walmart. So, okay. no, yeah. All in all, it seems like a good idea, and there's no problem in trying it. No, no. if it, fl- I mean, if it flops, who cares? Yeah, Walmart will still be doing fine. <laughs> and uh, it's weird. It's like a startup, so it's not even. They don't even own all of it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, but most likely, the status quo will still stay there for the finance industry. Um, they could possibly shake up some things and start competing, but it feels like one of these, you know, sell the news, like, eh, in five years, is Walmart really going to be 
taken over versus oh, yeah. these people. They might have a little bit of a value add, but that's another you know that's another big thing for me is like the, there's always these new Walmart announcements, and I just really don't care because it feels like nothing moves the needle for them anymore. Yeah, or because it, of, I mean, commerce is announcements. <laughs> yeah, announcements. Are, announcements are great, but getting millions of customers—that's a thing. I know Walmart Plus. That's meaningful, but it feels like it's like Facebook announcing product features, where that turns into news just because Facebook announced it. And a lot of the times, that is a big sell the news. You know. Yeah. All right, current state of FinTwit. Um, you have something that I guess both of us want to talk about, but um, I'll hit two questions that I have here first. Did you see all the deep fake stuff on Twitter? Yeah, kind of scary. Can't trust those videos anymore. You see the Buffett video? I uh, did not. I'll have uh, to find that one. Was it one. funny? It was pretty funny. <laughs> it's like those memes where they have him swearing and stuff like, or yeah. But now they can make it. Video, now know? they can make it into video. That that's pretty good, I guess. Good for the deep fakes. That's great uh, stuff. On the Buffett ID, uh, on the Buffett concept, um, does it frustrate you or do you feel uh, bearish when you see sort of anti-Buffett, anti-Munger type conversation, commentary going on? Because uh-huh. I feel like there was a whole lot of it this week. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know, just let them do their thing. They're kind of old. They're trying to have some permanent capital base, and they're trying to have these investments last forever. Just that's their what they're trying to do, and they're going to be really patient. Just, I don't know. So what if they're not investing in digital turbine? Like, <laughs> What's wrong with digital turbine? <laughs> or, I don't know. Uh, just That's the name I thought of. But stuff like that. All right. right? Um, I, yeah. uh, just, ARC Invest. Let's talk ARC. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to say, all right. This will be a little bit different, but I'm not going to say anything by name. I'm going to take, just imagine this, all right? Let's say there's an actively managed fund. It's an investment fund. But like most investment funds, ownership in this fund is split into shares and is publicly traded. And it gives access to every investor. Theoretically, an infinite amount of shares can be created or split for this fund as long as there is investor demand. But on the flip side, shares can be taken away or redeemed if investors decide to part ways with this fund. And there is some creation blocks, and there are things that mitigate some of this with third parties that market makers, uh, what do they call them, accredited purchasers or something like that. But we don't need to get into the details of that. Five years after the creation of this fund, this fund has put up tremendous returns, leading to tremendous inflows of capital, giving it AUM of $50 billion across its various strategies. Now the fund owns greater than 10% or more of dozens of stocks and has a copycat strategy in another country that's adding to its exposures. And investment banks are now selling structured products to help large investors lever up their exposure to this fund. It has been all inflows except recently when for a few days investors started pulling money out of the fund. What did the fund managers do? They decided to buy more of the small cap names illiquid names, and richly valued securities it has been known for. It has also decided to stop publicly disclosing all of its trades, and it has tripled the amount of disclosures on its trading documents. If you held money in this fund, would you be worried? I would be. Yeah. Now, not saying anything by name, I would just, if you're a big... You're a sexist. I would say nothing by name. Yeah. If if all those things, I mean, if all, all the, the information was there, all the all the liquidity concerns seem very real, and it 
I it has nothing to do with who's running it. Like that's that's the structure of the fund. That's the downside to it. Yeah. And maybe there's mitigated risk from the market makers that help them do the net asset value stuff and creation blocks and the ETF structure, but at some point <laughs> the share a, the money has to get returned to investors if they pull out the money. There is a part of me that does think, like, well, you think they don't understand it? Like, it, you know, the kind of, well, they are probably aware of this. Well, re- they don't even understand their own Tesla model. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I can't trust that. I'm sorry. Yeah. We have gotten, we've gotten some hate on Twitter for that. I don't, I can take it. <laughs> All right, the only thing I'll say is, the the path forward where things are fine is they don't get any redemptions or money keeps flowing in. Then the party keeps going. But they've set themselves up where if they ever have major inflows or outflows, excuse me, of say like $500 million a day for 20 days, I don't know. Seems like the positions they hold are going to be screwed. And what? then you can get... I mean, do they have any... What's their like cash reserve? I mean, do they have any? I don't cash know. Reserves? I don't know their cash reserves, but on a down day, they bought a bunch of illiquid small caps and Tesla on a down day. So I don't know. It reminds me. I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, Tobias Carlyle, who runs ETFs, so he knows about this. He said that his theory is if Tesla goes, Art goes. And then there could be a nice little sell-off, but he said it's a little speculative. I'm not gonna. He didn't. He didn't predict that. He just said that that's an interesting theory. Um, and I kind of think that there's there's a possibility there. I'm not saying it will happen. And there's no reason that Arc is like it's not guaranteed to fail. But if you're an investor in Arc, and there's a chance they fail, I don't know. That's a little bit risky. Like, yeah, it doesn't mean they're going to though. But there is. A lot, I mean, that presents a lot of opportunities for good companies that they own things like yeah. square or spotify yeah, because those, if might those be things that. get sold off because of arc's exposure to them yeah now i thought initially i was like all right square and spotify something like that they might be too big but with all the outside like people that fault basically copycatting their trades and then the structured notes i don't know it feels like there might be more exposure than just the single etf again that's way above that's not something we're gonna know, yeah. but if they only own like one or two percent of like Spotify, then that might not affect it as much. It's really those small caps where they own like ten percent or more of the outstanding shares. Where on an average volume day, it would take them like twenty days sometimes or ten days to sell out of their positions. That'd be hard to do yeah. based on normal volume. Okay, um, I think that's all we have for current state of FinTwit. Did you, you have anything else? Nope, okay. that's it. Don't get mad at us, please. <laughs> I don't want ARC to fail. I would just, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, next, we have our interview with IT Investment Talk. I guess we already kind of touched on it, but what was your highlight if you had to highlight. have one? Well, match group discussion I thought was good. Yeah. I mean, we're all investors. All three of us are investors in match. Uh, we talk about the HyperConnect acquisition, how Bumble's working, all the different parts of that business, why we like them going forward. Yeah, that's it. And PayPal is good too. Yeah, uh, digging into the details on Match was probably my favorite part. Um, 
There's some good stuff at the end, though, as well. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Overall, that. overall, one of the favorite interviews we've done. So, All right, uh, here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Investment Talk. Connor is, uh, as we now know him, um, and we got to know Connor through Twitter a little bit, um, and he also has a great newsletter worth reading. Um, so why don't we start there? How did you come? How did you come to start the newsletter, and then what do you want to do with it in the end? What's the sort of big goal? Uh, yeah, so in terms of that, first, I'd just like to say thanks for having me here today. Um, enjoy listening to your podcast, it's really good. Um, so in terms of the newsletter, so throughout my kind of investing journey, I've always kind of documented my own research for the purpose of, you know, going back and looking at my kind of thought process and, you know, kind of what I was basing my opinions on. I think it's useful, you know, um, if you're selling out of a position, you can go revisit that decision and see kind of what your mind state was like at the time. So I've always done that. And then last year, kind of prior to lockdown, just coincidentally, I just started a Twitter account to kind of share my thoughts and connect with some other like-minded individuals. Um, Cause surprisingly, even though working in the kind of investment industry, I don't, didn't have many peers that were like super interested in equities. So I just wanted to kind of have that discussion. Um, after a few months, I decided to launch a newsletter just to share my own research and, and insights because I noticed a lot of people I was discussing with, um, there was a big range of, you know, kind of there's industry experts, there's literally people that are running hedge funds that you can DM and talk to. But then there's also a big kind of population of people that wouldn't even know how to read a balance sheet. So I think initially when I started the newsletter, it was more so for the education um, you know, just to put out stuff um, where people could learn how to, you know, read through a 10K, which to some people might just be pretty simple and second nature. But for a lot of people, there's a lot of jargon there. There's a lot of misinformation. So before the news that are actually just published, you know, a few guides, just taking someone through how to read each of the financial statements. And then that kind of rolled into a newsletter um, at first, I was doing that every day whilst also being fully employed. I did that for about six months and then it became a bit too much. Um, so I changed it to three times a week, um, which has been a lot more manageable. People were quite understanding about it, which was good. The, the primary reason for doing it is mainly to spread the kind of educational aspect. Um, so half of what I do is like, it'll be, you know, kind of, discussing kind of stuff that's going on in the macro environment or even just a specific event that's taking place in the markets over the past couple of weeks. And then the other half is typically just, you know, like research. Um, But I always make sure that, you know, if I'm going through a filing, I'm not just, you know, glancing over terms or jargon. I make the point to actually explain what I'm talking about. You know, you can't just assume that someone knows what deferred revenue is. I always make the point of chucking a few sentences in there just to kind of explain what that is and how that works and why I'm highlighting it. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's grown, it's grown nicely. Um, there's a good community there behind it, which is really good. So yeah, it's been fun. How do you like uh, Substack? Substack is good um, for what it does. They've only recently over these last couple of weeks started rolling out changes. I was quite critical saying I've been with them for about a year now and I hadn't really seen any innovation. Um, and when you consider, you know, Twitter's just bought Review. Um, you've got other ones like ConvertKit, MailChimp, Ghost. Um, they seem pretty good. Substack's, so Substack's good for what it does. The 10% fee that they, they charge is quite high. I know that Review just cut theirs to 5%. I was looking at Review, but they don't really offer the same kind of depth of optionality. Um, so for now, Substack's good. But yeah, it's, it's good for what it does, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's grown phenomenally. Yeah, have you ever thought about sort of going independent, starting a website and kind of making it private that way? Or do you prefer the Substack format? I think I was actually thinking about this the other night in bed. And then I was, you know, looking through all the kind of alternatives. You know, you have Wix. Wix are doing quite a lot of interesting things. They just built out their app, which looks quite good. Um, so I have been looking at things, you know, the 10%, even if you're cutting that to 5% or lower, that's, you know, that's saving you a lot as like a content creator. So I don't think Substack is like a long-term thing. I'm looking to eventually kind of maybe create a website and then figure out how to do that independently. Just not quite there yet. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's still early in the, uh, the project. So should we, uh, talk to companies now? Cause we're yeah. planning, so we're planning to talk, uh, match group and PayPal and we'll probably dig into Bumble a little bit. We're going to start with Match. You want to hit the yeah. first? So I guess the first one, you know, Match Group, they had the big acquisition, I think $1.7 to $1.75 billion of HyperConnect, kind of out of the blue. I mean, it's a South Korean company. Um, mm -hmm. People at first didn't really even see how it fit into Match Group's portfolio. So what are your thoughts on the acquisition of HyperConnect and how does it fit in with Match Group's other properties? Yeah, so... First up, HyperConnect was a company that I wasn't familiar with. And then when Match Group say they're acquiring it for, I think it was 1.725 billion, you know, it's quite a substantial fee. So I was like, I better dig into this company. In terms of the deal, uh, last time I checked, Match Group had about just under $750 million on their cash line item. And then they also have another $750 million in terms of revolving credit facility which is good. They said they were going to be offering 50% cash, 50% newly issued shares to purchase this with the option to pay 100% cash, um, which was interesting. I don't think they would pay 100% cash. I think management basically said that because the market's quite volatile at the moment and you don't know what's going to happen by the time they close the deal. So it's just good to have that kind of clause in there. Being South Korea based, they obviously have a large presence in Asia. I think 80% of the revenues come from Asia. And then Match Group have this target of 25% revenue composition from Asia by 2023. Right now, that stands at about 18%. And management expressed in the earnings call prior to this announcement that they feel that goal might have been pushed back an extra year just, just because of COVID. Um, so it's good on that front, you know, the, the land grabbing in terms of Asia. In terms of how it kind of fits into Match Group's offerings, I think it makes sense because in Asia, you have this kind of dynamic where online dating is still st stigmatized between the kind of millennial age group. And then, 
you've seen that in the way that they've kind of marketed their products in several Asian countries. In Tinder, they advertise Japan as kind of a place to meet friends more so than a place to find a, a love interest. Um, so I think it kind of over on that end of the world, social discovery is this kind of more attractive um, kind of offering. So they're just attacking that. And I think it fits into their overall kind of projections. You know, they have Ablo, which is an interesting one. I don't personally think any of their social offerings are that great. Um, Ablo was their existing one. And then when they're acquiring HyperConnect, they're also acquiring Azar, which is a which is HyperConnect's biggest revenue driver. It's basically a social discovery app where you can have live video discussions with people from around the world. And that has the way they monetize is through kind of a la carte items, in-app currency. And last time I checked, it had about 500 million downloads. So that's an interesting one. The quality of the app itself, I didn't think it was super great, um, but I don't know if that's just more in line with what the Asian consumer likes. And then they have a smaller app called Hakuna Live, which is similar, but slightly different. It's more so people are hosting live streams as opposed to you're like swiping right and connecting with new people. Um, so I had, a, I had a few weeks playing around on Hakuna Live. The quality, again, of the experience, I found it to be quite low, um, but that's the fastest growing app, um, catching up in terms of revenue with Azar. And that also features the kind of typical a la carte and in-app currency purchase items. So I think that kind of social discovery element blends in with what Magic Group are trying to do um, in the longer term because they're heavily, heavily concentrated in the online dating space, whereas really you want to be attacking more kind of mediums than that. And if you've got social discovery, I think it kind of diversifies your offerings a little bit there because they have tried in the past to kind of create that social appeal with Tinder. I remember at one point you could search for friends. I don't know if that's available in the US, but um, in the UK, you can't do that. Um, on Bumble, you can. There's a feature. I don't know how heavily used that is. I'm not a user of dating apps myself. Um, but over the last few weeks, I have been downloading them all uh, for research. Um, yeah, for research in there. Yeah, I made sure <laughs> to put in my bio. I'm just here to like ask questions. I'm not here to uh, just cover my ass. Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting one. I think in terms of the deal itself, I don't think they paid a ridiculous premium. So HyperConnect generated about $200 million in revenue for the most recent year to 2020. They're expecting about 50% growth on top of that next year. So about 300 million. And then when you take in the purchase price, they paid maybe six times forward sales, which in a regular market environment might be considered, you know, kind of, an average price, but right now it looks relatively cheap compared to what some other stuff is trading for. Um, yeah, and they're profitable. Margins are at about 10%. Management said they're going to be pushing it up to about 20, 30% over the next few years, which would kind of match um, match groups overall margin anyway, in terms of operating. So I think it makes sense. Um, the apps they have are not great, in my opinion, but I can see you know, they're just, they're going into Asia, they're acquiring a lot of customers and consumers where the kind of preferences are different. So I can see, I can see why the deal makes sense. I don't think they paid a ridiculous price for it. Um, yeah, that's kind of my quick two cents on that one. 
No, that was good. Uh, what, what do you think the importance is of gaining that foothold in South Korea? Because Match has said they've struggled with that before, and then they made that acquisition with pairs in Japan, yeah. uh, another market they were struggling in. Uh, do you think that could really be what makes this deal work? I think so, because with the pairs acquisition, um, prior to that, they had very little presence in Japan. Um, and then when they went in, they acquired pairs. Now they have this, what management quote, one one-two punch deal where basically pairs and Tinder are just dominating the Japanese market. So I think you have to take a different approach in the West. We're very, I feel like, um, you know, we're all young guys. I feel like online dating is, there's no stigma to it. You know, no, if you've met your wife or your partner on Tinder, I don't think anyone really cares. Whereas when you're talking about the Asian kind of continent, the sentiment's a little bit different. So people might be interested in finding you know, relationships online, but they might not necessarily be interested in an app that's, you know, advertised and focused on that, that topic. Um, yeah, I actually forgot what the question was. Well, uh, <laughs> or go ahead. I, I was going to say, what do you think about the, it feels like there's kind of this push towards video. So we saw it with the acquisition of HyperConnect and then Hinge has rolled out some features where it's like, would you like the FaceTime or video chat? Yeah. What do you think? Because like Western, maybe it's just Western culture, but like my first impression when I'm like screen window shopping, online dating is not to video call someone that. So it feels like maybe money wasted to me. Or do you think that's sort of just my view as a consumer? Yeah. And Ryan's saying that because HyperConnect does have expertise in this video mm-hmm. stuff. So they're, they're one of the reasons they talked about during doing the acquisition is to port all this into, um, you know, match groups, existing properties. Yeah, so I think when they one of the good things that they acquired was basically, you know, they're taking in the existing team at HyperConnect. They're a founder-led team, and they were one of the first to kind of, you know, bring out low-latency, high-quality video um, across Asia around about 2014, I think, is when they released their Azar, their first product that featured all that kind of innovation. And this is especially important in Asia, you know, where the low latency works better um, on cheaper handsets. You know, iPhones don't have a huge presence in certain Asian places. Um, Android is the most popular app store there. So that was good. Um, they basically acquired this team that has the understanding of this um, impressive video technology. And then as you stated there, Hinge have been kind of experimenting with, you know, online face-to-face dating. Plenty of Fish also has a similar feature owned by Match Group. Whenever I think about this, I always try to frame it, you know, I'm kind of thinking about my own biases. I wouldn't personally like to just open up a dating app and be faced with someone directly. Um, But the kind of perception might be different in Asia. And I think that's maybe something that you might gloss over it being from the West. You might think, why are they investing in that? Um, But the kind of data tells you that that's what people want. You know, Azar's had over 500 million downloads over the five to six years. Um, Hakuna's catching up pretty well. It might just be part of the kind of attractive appeal of these apps in Asia. Um, so it's an interesting one. I don't know if it's wasted time. I think it. I think they kind of just have to dabble in that and see how it goes. It'll be interesting to see if they roll out similar features across their kind of flagship app like Tinder. But I do agree. I don't think it's like a big appeal, uh, maybe in, yeah. in Europe and the US to have video dating. But given the circumstances that we've been in for the last year and a half, you know, um, but it's hard to say, I, like, I've not, I don't use dating apps, so. 
luckily don't have to kind of think about that. But yeah, it's an interesting one. Okay. Um, what about potentially hitting sort of saturation saturation in terms of subscribers? Where do you think they the rest of their growth for Match Group as a whole will come from? Um, because I guess the risk is that Tinder's really big. Obviously, we, I mean, as a bias shareholder, I think there's a lot of industry tailwinds still ahead. But do, what do you think Match Group can do to kind of up its subscriber count from here? So it's interesting. Um, so they have currently just over 10 million or close closer to 11 million paying subscribers across Match Group. Um, and about if you think about Tinder, 30% of that will be a la carte items and then the rest will be in the subscription base. And then, if, But if you look at HyperConnect, about 90% of their overall revenues come from a la carte items. So that just kind of gives you a picture of the difference in um, behavior between the kind of the Western and the Asian consumer. The Asian consumer might not like the idea of subscribing to something on a monthly basis. They prefer using the in-app currency to buy things kind of, you know, at the moment in time. And a la carte items will typically have a higher markup on them. So I think you could see a kind of shift in composition between the subscription and the a la carte items. I think in terms of subscriber growth, how they're going to generate that, it's just purely land grab. You know, you said there's there's tailwinds. I, I still believe that those tailwinds from online dating are going to continue, you know, for the next decade or so. Um, here, here, obviously, everyone's familiar with it, but I think you've got huge opportunity in places like India. Um, there's just so many people there. And the more you get them engaged in online dating, the more they're going to be subscribing and then eventually paying for the products. Um so I think there's big tailwinds that you you can't ignore. You know, more people are going to be dating online. Whether that gets absorbed by Match Group or not, I don't know. Um, they do have some good competitors out there like Bumble, um, which I'm sure we'll probably discuss at some point. The market in general, I described it in certain areas as kind of like an oligopoly. So you've just got a few big players with considerable pricing power. Um, and Match Group are definitely kind of at the top of that hierarchy. You know, they own a portfolio of brands across different age segments. Um, they have considerable pricing power. And it's just, it's an interesting market because you have people that will typically subscribe to or at least use multiple dating apps. I can't remember the exact figure, but I remember reading that the number of apps on average that, you know, the kind of young individual users has kind of doubled. I think it was just shy of four, maybe. So you might have someone that's using Hinge, Bumble, Tinder, and something else. Whether they subscribe to each of those is a different story. Typically, you might imagine them only paying to use a couple, but it's kind of, yeah, it's an interesting market. I think the subscriber growth will continue compounding over time just because of those tailwinds. And then if they're, if they're entering Asia, you know, they're just opening themselves up to a bigger kind of mass population. So that could help drive subscribers as well. It'll be interesting to see how the hypergrowth acquisition impacts their overall paying subscriber count over the next year or so. Right. Yeah. I think the key is a lot of people talk about it. They're looking at something like Bumble and they're saying, all right, that's growing quickly. They're like, all right, is that replacing Tinder? But people don't realize is that people use multiple apps. It's not a zero sum game. You know, both apps can really win in the long run. Hmm. That's what I think is interesting because um, when Bumble, you know, now Bumble is public, everyone's like, well, like, you know, like the, the more attractive name, like they stand for women empowerment and all that kind of thing, um, kind of giving a bare thesis to match group. But then really 
as you just said, people use multiple apps. So I don't think it's a winner takes all. Um, it's just a factor of, you know, which one's more attractive and which one can kind of pull those existing customers and, you know, entice them to subscribe there. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's like part of the match group thesis is that each person that's looking for dates or relationships or whatever is looking for certain things. So if they can serve all different types of customers with the various apps, I mean, there's no one size fits all approach, like a social network, like, uh, you know, Facebook, when it was kind of the big one, it's similar to maybe what social networks are today, where there's really a lot of small ones out there. But Ryan, do you want to hit the, the next question here? Yeah. What about, well, let's, let's talk about valuation. What do you, okay. I mean, that's one of the, uh, big concerns, I guess, is they're trading out what a sales multiple somewhere in the teens and operating yeah, margins 17, 18, yeah. are in the teens as well. Uh, no, no, they're 30 to 35%. Oh, all right. Um, so I guess what, what, what do you make of the valuation? It's obviously gone up a little bit here in the last year or two. So um, do you think it's still reasonably priced? It's, it's, it's a hard one. Like valuation for me comes last in my process. So typically, you know, it's hard to say you don't know what the valuation is before you go into start researching a company because the information's there. I don't really like focusing on it at first just because it kind of blinds your judgment. Um, the valuation is quite expensive. Um, I think, yeah, you're right. They're trading in the mid-teens in terms of price to sales, which um, is maybe two-thirds or double what they were trading at when they separated. Um, I just think it's um, it's kind of a... It's just the market in general right now. Everything's trading expensive. So you're kind of asking yourself, so it's, it's a tough one because you can say that about everything. Like I would say probably like 70% of the companies in my portfolio are just, you know, really overpriced. I wouldn't be buying them right now. Um, but it depends on your kind of mindset. If you're thinking, I want to, if this company's trading at what, 40 to $50 billion right now, do I think it's going to be worth 40 to $50 billion in five, 10 years time? If you feel like it might be worth the same, then it's probably expensive. If you feel like it's going to be worth close to $100 billion, then that's a fair compounding rate over five years. Um, I would say it's expensive. I bought it at quite an expensive price. I think I was in around $120 um, and I've average costed as it you know, kind of oscillated around that kind of $120 to $150 mark. So... Yeah, for me personally, I know it's expensive, but I just know that I wanted to kind of have exposure to online dating. If it continues to fall in the future, I'll probably just buy some more. But yeah, it's, I would say it's expensive for sure. Yeah, because you look at it, you're like, all right, well, maybe a few years of growth is already priced in, but it's so hard to market time. You don't know if there's going to be a dip. So it's not something it's it, you can end up really hurting yourself if you're like, all right, I'm going to sell and wait for the pullback. That can just I mean, you could really lose all the compounding effects over the long term. Yeah, I think it just depends. Like as an investor, like there's so much kind of like common market knowledge out there. And I don't think it always applies to everyone. You know, like when someone says buy the dip, buy the dip, you know, some people that works for us, some people that doesn't. For me personally, I'm still fairly young. All the capital that I'm investing is, you know, sunk costs. I don't expect to be kind of wanting to access it for five, 10 years. Um so for me, it's, you know, I can handle trading flat for what, two, three years if I've overbought at a certain valuation. So yeah, I think it really just depends on your personal preference. Um, yeah. Well, 
Okay. And then the last thing we'll do with match group is the risk. So what do you see as any potential risk with the company? We'll probably hit Bumble a bit, talk about their competitive uh, positioning. And is there anything that can disrupt their place in the online dating space? I know people talk about, you know, Instagram and other social apps doing that. What are your thoughts on any risks uh, with match group? Really interesting one, because you have Tinder, you have Tinder's the main kind of flagship product. And then match group as a whole, you know, up until really the last year or so were known for their online dating. And that's kind of what separated them from social media companies. As you see them now slowly starting to roll into the kind of social discovery space, then they're kind of entering a new market where I wouldn't say that, you know, they're not competing with Twitter or whatever, anything like that, but it's kind of that screen time, you know, you would spend time on Tinder and OkCupid for dating purposes. But now if you're going to be spending screen time on match groups offerings for, for other things like social discovery, then you're inherently competing with other, with other apps there. So the competition comes from, I would say, anything that kind of takes screen time away from someone. And then you also have apps like Bumble that are coming up, which are small. I don't really think they have the firepower to go on an acquisitive rampage and kind of catch up with Match Group right now. Um, but there's something you have to consider from larger companies. Facebook have been trialing, I forget what it's called, but they've trialed it in Ireland and Canada, kind of like a dating service. I don't think people would really want to have their Facebook account linked with their dating account. People like to compartmentalize things like that. But then I was thinking if Instagram launched a dating service, you know, Facebook's a different one because face, a lot of people have Facebook because it's just like, you know, it's just like a landing page for who they are. You know, if someone needs to find you or connect with you, but then Instagram's more about kind of accentuating what you're doing in your life. Yeah. You know, a lot of thirst goes on there. So I feel like Instagram would be an app that you wouldn't really mind having a dating profile on. So it would be an interesting one because Instagram has, you know, billions of users. And then also you just have to consider the fact that some uh, big tech company could just like build something in house. that's completely separate. Facebook could do that and just not have from Facebook slapped over it like they do with everything else. Um, so yeah, as, but right now, they're the leader in the market. They have a pretty strong hold over it. They have considerable considerable pricing power. Yeah, I think the, the fact that some other big company could just launch a dating service is always going to be looming. And, you know, if anything like that happened, you'd probably see some short-term volatility. I remember when Facebook announced maybe a year or two ago that they were entering the dating space, match group stock took a dive. Yeah. Um, but then if you, if you zoom out and look at what it's done since, you know, wasn't such an issue. You couldn't um, even see it on any of the earnings statements. There was no change in the growth, or at least I don't think. And it might have been tiny, you know. Yeah. What do you think about in terms of competition? Uh, do you see I don't. I mean, I, Bumble is interesting. It's growing faster. Anecdotally, it's pretty big in the U.S. Right, Ryan? You'd agree. It's pretty big, but Tinder yeah. is still growing fast. And Hinge. then Hinge is doing really well in the United States. What are your thoughts on that? Are, are you, is that growing at all in Europe, at I'll, least anecdotally? I'm, I'm going to add, go add something there. The other part with Hinge, and Hinge introduced a feature here in the U.S. that uh, it's called Roses, I think. And yeah. it's, it's basically this now catalog approach where instead of just one, instead of seeing one account and swiping right or left, yes or no, you can spread all these different accounts and pick one, which that feels to me 
uh, and then you only get like one once a week, but then if you want to do it again, you can pay 99 cents or 2.99 yeah. or whatever and that's it is. Part of the a la carte thing, yeah. Right, and that to me feels like a, it it sort of eliminates the Instagram as a threat because that's the great thing about Instagram is you can look at it sort of like a catalog and slide into the DMs if you're <laughs> if that's your style on any number of accounts. I think Hinge that rose feature that catalog approach kind of eliminates that threat from social media services. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on Hinge at all? Um, you think you go global or anything, anything in Europe? There? So Hinge is an interesting one. And it's, I wouldn't say it's huge in the UK, um, but it has a different approach. You know, they market themselves over here. as like the app that you want to delete kind of thing. You know, it's more focused on finding someone and then removing the app. Um, and during the last few weeks, I actually downloaded a few dating apps and create a profile stuck in my bio. I'm just basically here to ask questions and listed the questions and I got a surprising amount of responses. And a few of my takeaways from that one, Bumble was the most impressive to me. So I had used Bumble maybe like three years ago when I was single. Um, it was quite basic at the time, um, but they had a lot more kind of functionality. They asked you straight away for, for your height, your interests. Um, you can search for people based on interests. Whereas Tinder's just still, you know, swipe left, swipe right. So Tinder to me felt kind of not rudimentary by any standard, but it didn't feel like it changed in the last three years since I've used it, apart from a lot of a la carte menu items. Bumble just seemed a lot more put together. It looked like it had been crafted, you know, to really find what you're looking for. But what was interesting when I was asking females about their perceptions on Bumble versus Tinder and Hinge, a lot of them were not really phased by the fact that women can message first, a surprising amount. Um, and when I asked if they felt empowered by that, none of them really said they felt empowered by that. They didn't really feel that women messaging first was the primary reason they were using it, um, which was interesting. It's obviously a very small sample size and they're all from the UK. So like anecdotal at best. And then when I was asking about Hinge, you know, a lot of them said they'd used it, but they primarily just used Tinder and Bumble. So I don't really think Hinge is like, you know, caught on so much here. Um, but the app itself is pretty good. It's pretty clean. I like what it stands for. You know, you're downloading it to delete it. Um, yeah, so it's interesting because Bumble to me was, it looked like the superior app. Like I would probably rather use Bumble if I was single. Um, but then a lot of the women I was asking said they don't like how focused it is on all the questions they're asking you, um, the fact that they have to message first sometimes, which I feel would be an interesting thing in when Bumble eventually move into Asia, because in Asia, the kind of culture is that women are a bit more reserved. I know that's the blanket statement to say, um, and it's definitely not the case with everyone, but just in terms of the stigma of online dating, mix that in with this kind of culture of women being slightly more reserved on the aggregate. I don't know how that would function if Bumble would have to remove that. Um, somebody asked me an interesting question the other day about Bumble's, you know, flagship women message first idea as being a competitive advantage. And it kind of made me think, well, I don't think it is. I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. But my thoughts were, I don't see how that's a competitive advantage. To me, a competitive advantage is something that's, you know, difficult to replicate on scale, it gives them kind of leverage or an edge. And I just, 
I don't know. I don't think it adds so much to the product that it's a competitive advantage. So I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts on that one. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, there's probably a reason that Match Group hasn't done it with any of its products. If they yeah. saw that it was so worthwhile, I think they would likely copy it. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you, people wanted us to talk about Bumble. So what do you hmm. think of that business independently? We can kind of discuss that. Yeah. As well. Any of the, I mean, do you think, I guess one concern I have with Bumble is like, it's not really global. It's only in the Western world. Do you see them able to go, you know, globally, like, like Tinder kind of is doing? Yeah. So you guys probably have more insight into the S1 than me. I've not had a lot of chance to kind of read for it yet. I had a quick glance at the figures. Um, that is basically Bumble and then a little add-on with Badu when they kind of merged the two companies together. The growth rates looked good until they merged when the accounts got kind of messy. Um, I didn't really dig into it too much further than that. They report their users slightly differently. It's Tinder, you know, Tinder just, uh, Match Group just report paying subscribers, whereas I can't remember how Bumble do it. Um, but no, they, like, they do it where it makes it seem a little bit better than yeah, it might actually be. yeah. I remember thinking that. Um, but Bumble as an app, the product's good. I think it's good. As I just said, I would ponder how it's going to work in Asia just with the kind of cultural differences. Um, and then you have the company that's kind of leveraged all on one app. You know, Bumble is basically the flagship product. I know that's kind of the case at Match Group, but they just have such a wider variety of offerings. And then even the smaller ones are growing very fast. Hinge is growing in adoption. Pairs has grown revenue at like five to six hundred percent of the last five years, somewhere between there. Um, so I think it's a tough ask to say if they're ever going to be big competition to Match Group, but you know it's still early days. I think they have a good product. If they have the firepower to acquire some smaller ones or build other apps in house, that could be interesting. Um, yeah, so it's kind of you know they're on the radar, but I don't really see them as being a huge threat to match group at this point, but that's certainly interesting. And as we said earlier, I don't think it's a winner takes all market. I think, you know. Yeah. I mean, as an investment bumble, like, I mean, you look at it right now, it's, it's obviously trading at a really high valuation, but, uh, and, and the growth looked good, a little bit less consistent than match group, which you could probably see with the, the basis on, you know, one property, but uh, yeah, the and management kind of had a concern with, you know, the, the history of there. I don't really know any of the details, but that there was a few red flags of that. And the fact that, or I guess, I don't know. I'm forgetting the, the, right, yeah, it felt just a little sloppier in terms of how the business was run. Maybe that's yeah. just because of where they're at in the life cycle. Um, I don't, yeah, it wasn't, I wasn't as excited, but at the same time, you could say it's younger, it's got more growth ahead of it. It could be mm -hmm. a lot like match group in the future. Uh, um, well, I'd say if you're a match group shareholder, I'm kind of thinking like, all right, I'm going to track what Bumble's growth is. If it consistently puts up higher growth rates than match group, maybe that's a concern, but I, I see no reason why they can't grow in tandem. Like, you know, what are, last, last question on match before we move on. What do you think of COVID, uh, what do you think the impact will be of sort of a grand reopening? If everyone's starting to go out again, do you think that will spur more engagement on these apps or will it kind of reduce that? Um, or do you think it'll just have no impact? So it's an interesting one. Um, and it also affects the outlook. So I'll probably discuss both. So in terms of the guidance that they gave for the full year 2021, management 
basically just said, you know, we're going to match the current year, which was, I think, 19% revenue growth, which would take them between 2.75 to 2.85 billion for the full year. Management made the, made the point of saying, you know, we're not expecting anything amazing to happen, you know, in the second half of the year when we quote unquote open up if that happens. So they gave quite conservative guidance. Um, and I thought that was good because, you know, you're managing expectations. If, you know, if we don't see a surge in demand in online dating, then the 90% growth rate is still, is still good. You know, you're not upsetting anyone. I personally think they will see a surge in demand. So I think they'll top that fairly easily. Um, but I like that for management, you know, they're staying realistic. We really don't know what's going to happen. Um, in the UK, we just got guidance saying that we're going to be kind of, everything's going to be open by June 21st. Um, you know, so that leaves the second half of the year where people can, you know, get out, go to festivals, uh, go to restaurants, meet other people in person. And in terms of the company and the stock, I think it's interesting because when you close the economy and everyone's in their houses, you know, people still desire connection and human interaction. You know, people are more active on social media, you know. So in terms of the online dating aspect, they're still seeking to meet people. And you can see that Tinder's uh, subscriber growth has still been growing, growing 19% in a year that kind of stops people doing what your apps kind of facilitate people doing, which is meeting up in person and dating is still pretty impressive. They weren't hit as hard as you might expect. But on the kind of other side of that coin, the share prices kind of ran away with itself. So when we do reopen, you might see some, you know, selling or whatever. I don't really like paying attention to that, but you might see some kind of typical selling for the reopening trade. Um, but in terms of the actual company itself, I think they stand to benefit from a reopening of the economy just purely because, you know, humans want to go outside and interact and do things and go to festivals, eat food. So I think people will still be using the apps, but they'll also now be, you know, benefiting from the fact that they can actually go meet up with these people and, you know, do whatever people do after they match on Tinder. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's a huge impediment that the economy is opening. I think it's good for the company, obviously. For the stock, uh, I don't really know. And I don't really care in the short term, you know. Right. So, yeah. Okay. okay, should we talk PayPal? PayPal, yeah. All right, I'll I'll kind of hit the first question. So it uh, unlike Square or some Visa. of the so, yeah or some of the other um, payments companies, PayPal isn't as intuitive. So do you want to kind of describe what exactly the business does? Yeah, so PayPal is an interesting one. I'm probably going to talk about it, um, but they have some really interesting plans for the next five years. But on the base of it, if you just imagine PayPal being kind of this platform in the middle, and then on the left-hand side, you have, you have merchants, you know, small businesses, large businesses, and on the right-hand side, you have consumers. So that they've got this platform that connects hundreds of millions of consumers with tens of millions of merchants, and they're offering kind of value propositions to each party, and those value propositions kind of intertwine whereby the consumers benefit from having merchants on the platform and vice versa. Typically for merchants, they'll be offering kind of, you know, the access to the payments platform to facilitate payments through their business across more than just the PayPal payments um, system. You know, they can use Google, Apple Pay, all that kind of stuff. It's not limited in that sense. Um, so it's kind of uh, an agnostic platform for merchants. 
for their kind of digital checkout as well as the digital wallets. Um, they also offer they have a they have a side of the business that offers credit to these companies um, and kind of fraud detection and all that kind of stuff. And then on the consumer end, you know, digital wallets, they also they also offer credit facilities to consumers as well. Um, yeah, so it kind of just facilitates all that kind of commerce. So I, everyone calls them a payments company, but I think over the next five years, they're going to be growing into the e-commerce space because they're actually planning on building kind of an e-commerce platform within their own app, which they title the super app. And during this year, we're probably going to see some pretty revolutionary changes to both the Venmo and PayPal app. Interesting. Um, in terms of that, they're going to be facilitating everything from a kind of e-commerce platform with a wish list that consumers can add items to, and then the merchants can get access to that data, you know, see what they're interested in and send them directed ads for that. Um, they're, they're also going to open up their investing capabilities. So right now you can purchase cryptocurrency through PayPal. You can store it in your digital wallet, um, but they're going to be opening up to, you know, different asset types like securities and fixed income. They're talking about having high, high yield savings accounts on PayPal. They're also talking about expanding the digital wallets and there's a few other things they had in there as well. They have so much. It's like a yeah, whole, so it's like a conglomerate at this point. So, yeah, so I, get, I haven't really tracked it as much. So you're saying that they're kind of planning uh, to roll out this one-stop shop for all things consumer finance, I guess, intermingle that with e-commerce as well. Is is that, are they planning that for this year? Yeah. So they started talking about it um, a few quarters ago. They're basically just saying, you know, we're next year we're going to be doing some pretty radical things to both the PayPal and the Venmo platforms because you know, right now everyone thinks of them kind of just as digital wallets. But they basically said um, during the investor day, Dan Schulman, their CEO, talked about how you know we have 50 apps on our phone. We maybe only use 10 on a weekly basis. Um, why do you want to be using you know five different apps for five different things? We want people to come to PayPal and be able to access their kind of e-commerce needs, their digital wallets uh, needs for sending and receiving payments if they have savings accounts, their investing accounts. Um, so yeah, a super app. They basically just want everything in-house on the, on the PayPal platform with a brand that people can trust. So yeah, it's pretty pretty exciting. Okay. Well, who are their main competitors then? Because I know you look at Square with the Cash App a bit. Um, uh, you look at Visa and MasterCard. They're kind of frenemies. The the big bank or the traditional banks have always been known as to be like the you know the enemy they were trying to disrupt back in the early days or even Shopify now is are they a competitor? Uh, who do you think are their main competition? Uh, you know going over for the next few years. I think the better question to ask is who is not their competition because as you just said they have so many different competitors from so many different angles. You've got Shopify. With the kind of e-commerce and then also shop pay with the with the, the payments you have even apple with apple pay i know apple don't disclose a lot of information on apple pay but that is huge you have square who kind of as time goes on i'm noticing that square and paypal are kind of you know offering a lot of the same things like they're branching out individually as companies but then that's kind of also intersecting with what each other do Square are known for their point of sale hardware. Um, PayPal acquired IZET, IZETL, um, a few years ago, which do the point of sale. They also have their 
QR codes, which is you know based on their kind of not online or offline um, kind of e-commerce idea. So I think Square is an interesting one, and it's probably the easiest one to draw to because you know people talk about them a lot. But I think PayPal just have competition everywhere. Um, payments providers, e-commerce platforms, brokerages now probably in 2021. Any company that's offering cryptocurrency like Coinbase. Um, they're going public, had some had a quick flick through their S1, very interesting. Um, yeah, so I just think they have competition coming from all angles. Um, and despite that, they've gave some pretty bullish guidance over the next five years for what they call, you know, the next five years at PayPal. They've been separated from eBay for five years now. So the whole kind of idea this year when they were looking back at the last five years was like, here's what we've done for the last five years. Here's what we're going to do for the next five years. And the next five years look a great deal more promising than the last five years. And the last five years have been pretty great. Um, so it depends whether you believe they're going to you know, pull that off. Right. They still have to execute. Yeah. What do you think of sort of this growing battle? I was going to say between Venmo and Cash App, but it sounds like potentially they're Super App and Cash App. How do you think that plays out? Do you think uh, we see a winner in that space or is it sort of a rising tide lifts all boats scenario? It's tough because it's a very competitive space and you know people like, I don't know how many payments platforms you use, but I currently use a few. I do have Cash App. I have Apple Pay, which is the one that I use by far the most. Right. I also have PayPal. We don't have Venmo over here in the UK. Um, in terms of, Cash App directly versus Venmo. You know, Venmo has more users. I think seventy million, roughly. Um, I've not read through the Cash App earnings report, but I think it was thirty-five, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, 30, thirty-six million. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so they're catching up. They're growing a lot faster as well. And Cash App at the moment offers a lot more than Venmo does. If you're looking at it from a bird's eye view, but as we said during this year, Venmo are planning on rolling out crypto across every market, not just the US. They're also planning on rolling out, you know, a kind of brokerage system where you can buy other assets as well as kind of creating that super app. So I think Venmo is going to become, although they're ahead, I think it's going to become, you know, a bigger battle even as soon as this year. Cash App in the UK is not heavily used purely because it's very basic. And I know in the US, you guys can buy crypto and stocks as well. And do a lot of stuff with Cash App. But in the UK, it's basically just a P2P app that you can send currency to your friends in the UK or the, the US. Um, so yeah, I think if Cash App want to kind of com compete, you know, they, they have to expand what the Cash App does in Europe. You know, it's a big market. I know the US is huge, but they really need to kind of land grab the UK and the EU because right now the cash app over here is just very basic and it doesn't have half the functionality that it does in the US. So I think to make it more attractive, you know, they have to improve on that. Okay. So there's still a chance, like it's not, you know, in the US it's kind of a closed deal where it's Venmo and Cash App. They're kind of the I mean, it's gonna be really hard for someone to come up. But in Europe, there's still potential for anyone oh, to yeah. in in Europe and the UK, um, so many people use PayPal because it's kind of it's there and it's the most commonly used one. Cash app just, it doesn't have the functionality of even the, the PayPal app right now. So, you know, people are less incentivized to use Cash app. But I think if Square can just, you know, put their finger on the button and just 
make the cash app in the UK or the EU the same as it is in the US, then they're, they're going to grab a lot of share because they're brilliant at marketing um, and they're brilliant at just kind of promoting the cash app. So I think they need to get on that quick because Venmo isn't even available here as well. So Okay. Yeah, you said something interesting there, which is uh, using multiple apps. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Like for, for me both. at least, yeah. yeah, you like... In the U.S., you have to have Venmo. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to have Cash App, but it's basically whatever your friends are using or whoever you're paying for. Let's say they buy you a meal or something, and you want to pay them back. Like it's got to be whatever they're using. So you kind of have to have both apps. Yeah, yeah, it's not hard to get. Um, we're going to talk about crypto a bit, but I wanted to talk about maybe. I know a lot of people do look at PayPal. It's not a standard business. Yeah, you're not just looking at revenue, profits, whatever. I mean, they have those, but. What are the most important metrics when tracking the success of PayPal? Because I know like if someone's new to the company, it can kind of be overwhelming and it looks a bit like a black box. So I would say the bulk of PayPal's revenues come from transaction revenues. So on the customer and merchant side, you know, when a customer is buying something and they're going to be taking a little fee off that, if it's in a different currency, they're going to be charging a currency conversion rate. Same on the merchant side as well. They take a little fee everywhere. And transaction-based revenue is, you know, the bulk of their revenue. And you can kind of see how that grows by looking at the kind of total payments volume. So I think total payments volume is one to watch. You want to be looking at the net active account ads. Um, They added over 70 million accounts this year. And typically, the net actives are in the kind of mid-teens to 20 range on a yearly basis. Um, Maybe slightly higher than that. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but for next year, they're suggesting 50 million net active ads for accounts, which is still considerably high if we ignore this year. And this is part of that, you know, the super app thing that they're going to be rolling out. They think that they're going to be getting a lot of engagement there. Um, so yeah, I would say the key metrics you want to be looking at is just basically how much payments volume and how many new accounts are they opening and the engagement there as well. They provide a lot of different engagement um, rates kind of metrics. And one of the things that they talk about is they tier their customers between kind of low engaged, medium engaged, and highly engaged. And they stated that the number of users over this last one year that have moved from medium engaged to highly engaged is three times what it usually is. And the kind of byproducts of having highly engaged users. Um, and the, the reason they're having more highly engaged users is purely because their product portfolio is expanding. You know, they have crypto, buy now, pay later, each of these two products increasing uh, engagement. And when you have something like a, a user going from a medium engaged to a highly engaged, then the typical uh, number of payments they're using on PayPal doubles. And then on Venmo at times is by 10. Really? So just from going up that one segment. Um, so I think that's something to watch out for as well. They're the, they're the key kind of indicators that I watch over. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to look at with PayPal. Uh, we can talk about it forever. You mentioned crypto a bit as kind of a way to get that engagement up. What are your thoughts on this crypto stuff that they're doing? Do you see it as more of a marketing tool or are there are they talking about being an even bigger part of the you know PayPal portfolio? So, so Dan Schulman is very, very bullish on the whole digital, you know, um, new, I think he like unironically calls it the new paradigm, which, you know, whatever. but uh, he calls it the new, you know, digital market. And he's very bullish on that. Um, and crypto is obviously a huge part of that. He's maybe not like 
a, a Jack Do- uh, a Dorsey. Jack? Yeah, I just forgot. Yeah, Jack Dorsey. Um, he's maybe not like as clearly enthused, but he on and the digital kind of scope, he's very kind of bullish on that. He gave a lot of good guidance for it. Um, the paper for, for me personally, Bitcoin is not something that I'm that interested in. I don't feel like I understand it well enough to have like that great of an opinion, um, which I'm comfortable with. But then as two of my favorite companies, Square and PayPal are kind of moving more into that direction. Um, it makes me sweat a little bit. Um, I know the question wasn't about Square, but you know, Square recently just bought more Bitcoin. It's now 5% of their, their cash balance. Um, so if you're not following Square carefully, you might trip up over some of the kind of logistics of accounting. You know, it's uh, indefinite life intangible on their balance sheet. So what happens in that case is you, when the company, when the value of the asset kind of sinks below their cost basis for the asset, then you'd have to write an impairment, reduce it on the balance sheet. That would go through your income statement. But then on the other end, if Bitcoin, you know, flies by 500%, you can't, you know, you can't do an upwards revision and record that. The only time you can really record any gains is when you sell it. Um, so it's just an interesting one with such a volatile asset. I don't think 5% of Square's balance sheet is an issue right now. Sorry if you can hear that. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I don't think it's a huge issue. With, with, with PayPal right now, they're just facilitating a lot of Bitcoin transacting and it has like ridiculous engagement. You know, people check their app 50% more. Um, they transact more when they're a crypto customer. So I think it has spillover effects that I do like in that, you know, someone might come to PayPal and they're like, they've never used PayPal before. They open a digital wallet and then they kind of have access to they might open a kind of digital wallet for fiat currency. When the super app rolls out, they might start investing through PayPal. They might take a loan, you know, so it has all those kind of ramifications. Um, PayPal, are, I think, offering crypto payments across all 27 or 29 of their 27 or 29 million of their merchants as well this year, okay. which is interesting. I think for me, I just don't have an informed enough opinion on Bitcoin to really know how much it scares me right now. All I do know is that it's not like a huge part of the business just yet. And, you know, for like Square and for PayPal. Yeah. So I don't think it's like an issue in terms of liquidity or solvency, which is kind of the first box ticked. But then if I was to see something like, you know, PayPal make Bitcoin 30% of their cash balance and I, you know it's a tough one because I, I don't I don't dislike Bitcoin but I don't really I don't really believe in it so much so it's hard when you have your you know one of your favorite companies really driving into this but then I don't know Dan Shulman's obviously a great deal smarter than me uh, but John Rainey the CFO as well it's a tough one well what are your thoughts on that I mean as long as, of, or as long as they're not going all in you're probably Cool. Uh, we've been following Square for a long time. It's not something we own, but you know, five percent of the balance sheet seems okay. Mm-hmm. It's not something I love, but if they went up to thirty percent, like you said, that would be a huge concern for me. Yeah, and it used to be uh, the narrative used to be Bitcoin, those services, Bitcoin as a whole is just a customer acquisition cost. It gets more people onto the uh, Cash App or a customer acquisition tool. It gets more people onto the Cash App, and then they transact 
uh, in other ways. But now, now it's starting to become, uh, I guess, riskier. The price of Bitcoin starts to matter more when they start throwing it on the balance sheet. I guess um, if they, but yeah, it's less it, predictable. Yeah, I guess if they keep it below a certain amount, who cares? But I don't. Sometimes it just worries me that the whole thesis is becoming a little Bitcoin centric on yeah. Square. And then less with PayPal, though, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, what was that? Less with PayPal, right? Because they're not putting anything yeah, in the yeah. balance yet. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think Square is slightly ahead um, because obviously I was reading through a little bit of their earnings report today. Um, obviously, they have more exposure to it. The way they trend, they, the way they kind of report the revenue from Bitcoin transacting has people up in arms as well. I think really, if you just spend five minutes and you know read the report, you can see they have to report it like that. They don't have a choice. Um, yeah, it's just ugh. it just makes things messy, and when it's something that you're not overly enthusiastic about, you kind of second guess yourself. If I ever got to the point where I consider selling because of the exposure to Bitcoin, yeah, that's a question I'll have to ask a little later down the line. But it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a also, question you hope that you never have to. I answer. don't have to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the other thing is, like every quarter, you don't really know what's going to happen because. Uh, if Bitcoin's price skyrockets, there's the idea that more people are probably going to be transacting because it, you know the mm-hmm. price becomes its own rationale and there's euphoria around it. So I'm just curious what happens if if Bitcoin dropped 80 percent, um, like it did in 2016 or whatever. What happens then to the rest of the cash app? What happens to the oh. transaction volume um, and user growth in and out? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just worried that it goes both ways. Um, That's the issue because if they're then, you know, right now we're saying it's not like a big issue for solvency or liquidity, but then engagement has those nice spillover effects. But then if people suddenly, for whatever reason, you know, stop transacting in Bitcoin, you know, the top line is going to plummet. And although we know that it doesn't really matter because it's the gross profit you're looking at there, um, engagement might fall. People might only be using Cash App for that. And then if this thesis kind of bakes into one that's like Cash App is this great app and it has all these features and it's just like Bitcoin mania. And then if they, you remove that, if it ever comes too large a you know, reason why people are on there and then that kind of gets removed, you know, the sentiment might change and sentiment's really important. Um, yeah, I was reading over the Twitter earnings or the 8K that came out today and the sentiment shift in that company has been incredible. So it just, you know, it goes to show you. And a lot of these companies are trading at very high valuations. So I feel like they're very sensitive to a change in narrative. Um, I think, yeah, that's that's a tough one. Okay. Wrap up questions. Yep. yep. All right. Uh, First one, uh, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? Yeah. So (laughs) I actually tweeted this exact question out just for inspiration earlier. And I think I would just say, a lot of investment advice is like really great, you know, when you have things like, you know, buy the dip or discount average, but then I don't think they actually apply to, to everyone's situation. For me, I don't see the point in buying the dip, quote unquote. You know, if, if you own something that's ran up 100% and it falls 5%, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, cutting my lunch break short to go like smash the buy button and buy something that I already owned for 100% more. I think you just need to, be a bit more sensible. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of sayings that I maybe don't necessarily agree with for myself, but I feel like 
they are good for some other people. You know, if, if you're someone that likes to discount average in every week and there's a big dip there, five to ten percent, then yeah, you should probably be buying a dip because that just kind of emphasizes the reason that you're discount averaging. Um yeah, I think that's mainly one of the ones that I find a bit more disturbing. Um, but I think on the whole, like most advice is specific to kind of whatever, you know, kind of vibe that you're going for if you're investing. I think the biggest thing you should do is kind of make it match your personality. Um, and then if you know kind of what your personal investing style is, you can kind of filter out what advice kind of applies to you. Um, you know, some people will say that the only thing that matters is Kega. And then some people will say you have to be comfortable holding a, a company that's flat for five years for like some ultimate payoff. You know, a lot of these things don't really marry each other. So you just have to kind of know yourself, know what you're comfortable with, understand the company, um, which sounds obvious, but, you know, a lot of people will just buy based on some kind of like fleeting evidence. And then if it tanks 25%, they might not understand why they should have conviction or believe they have conviction. Um, and then, you know, it's just, it's just a bad way to do it over the long term. Um, I'd be interested to know what you two guys' favorite is. Favorite saying? Uh, that we disagree with or agree with? Yeah, that you disagree with, yeah. Disagree with, I would say. I know what yours oh, is. Oh, mine is buy quality companies at any price. I mean, I, I, I debate this on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. price, price matters to me. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people do well buying companies and ignoring price and just buying the best companies. But I believe it's a, uh, what are they called? The horse track thing, the paramutual system where, you know, I, the I best horses sure. are going to have the high, the, the worst mm -hmm. odds. So yeah that's me i don't know i'll go with, i'll just copy you i forget i i think uh seven investing asked us that on our interview with them <laughs> yeah so i forget, what, forget I forget what, what i said. said but yeah i i can agree i'm not you know just buying quality because it's quality you're we're all value investors uh in yeah. in some way so if it's not going to be worth more than what you paid it's not uh, it's not uh, okay. a good investment. All right. Um, you last want to question. Make the last yeah. one. Yeah. So, what is one piece of advice you'd have for anyone who wants to get into investing? And then I'm going to toss one on special for you. Where do you uh, see your newsletter going in like five years? Ideally, where do you see the investment talk newsletter at? Okay. Um, so, first one, tackle that question first. I think my advice is pretty boring, like, and it's biased towards what I did. So, I, when I first started investing, it was just like small sums. Like I did make all the classic mistakes, you know, buying small caps. I didn't understand buying stuff without, you know, reading statements, um, just buying the news basically. Um, I think that's like a really important part of it. So if you're going to be investing in individual companies, just make sure it's a very small amount, something that's like, you know, pocket change. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to be life-changing. I think you need the only way you can really experience the kind of emotional side of investing is through experiencing it, you know, with your own kind of portfolio. I don't think you can read about that. And I think it's inevitable that everyone makes mistakes. So if you're going to make them, make them with small amounts of, you know, capital, even if you have a large amount of money you want to invest. If you want to dabble in individual stocks, but you have no understanding, I think you should just use a tiny amount, like take an amount half it, half it again, and, and play with that. Um, another one would be just learn basic accounting. It's not super difficult, um, but if you can just read through an income statement, the balance sheet, and a cash flow statement, 
as well as understand what the notes to those financial statements kind of mean. You know, it's all there in a 10K or a 10Q um, to really understand what the company's doing. And a lot of people just don't have a basic kind of understanding of accounting. So I think if you can get that and it doesn't take much work, you know, YouTube's great. You can buy some books. Um, you don't have to set a CFA or an ACA. You can grab an understanding so that you can kind of translate that. So you can read through them and see, well, you know, that their liquidity is good. The solvency is good. You know, they're covering their interest. If they're highly leveraged. Um, you can just kind of like translate the health of the company with your own eyes without having to base your opinions from someone else. So I think understanding accounting. And then lastly, I know a lot of people say like readings overrated. Um, you know, it's the 21st century, whatever. I think reading is not overrated. I think you just have to read. You don't have to read a lot, but if you read from great sources um, and what you read doesn't really kind of dictate what you're going to do. Like the first book I read was The Intelligent Investor. I'm sure it was many people's first read. I didn't really take away from that a lot in terms of the value investing approach. You know, buying cigar butts was never something I thought was that interesting or compelling. But the big thing that I got from that book was just the mental philosophy. Um, I feel like it just fit my personality. You know, all talking about Mr. Market, being comfortable with volatility, I think one of my core strengths is the able the ability to kind of dissociate the emotion from volatility. I don't do anything particularly unique. And I think one of the core strengths is I can sit and chill looking at my portfolio getting smashed like it is doing this week. Um, you know, if you're looking out a longer time horizon. So I think read books, understand basic accounting, and you should be fine. I think, yeah, if you get those right. Um, over time, you know, through experience, actually investing as well, you should be fine. And don't use paper trading accounts. I think that's a waste of time as well. Okay. And then, and then what about the newsletter? Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, the the newsletter we'll just call it one year. So it's been it's been one year since I've been doing it. It's been growing very well. You know, we're approaching five thousand readers, which is fun, and the community nice. kind of thing is the biggest part I get from it. Um, I interview quite a lot of people on a weekly basis and I do it written form. This was like previously because I was anonymous for a while and the whole video thing was, you know, just kind of a roadblock to that. So, but I actually like the written form because I can send out questions and someone, you know, could think about their answers and articulate what they want to say and the message they want to get across. So I think that really helped drive the growth in terms of where I want it to go. Um, just today, actually, I registered it as a private limited business. Um, nice. So that's all been good. Accountants signed, bank account opened, all that kind of stuff. So I think in the future, that's going to be something that I'm working on just as hard as I've been working on it over the past uh, year or so and just continue to grow it and compound the kind of shared knowledge there, the community I don't really know where it's going to go. I started it without any kind of ambition of, you know, monetizing or doing anything in particular with it. So I'm just kind of keeping it, uh, keeping an open mind and seeing where things go. The newsletter itself has opened up quite a lot of opportunities for me personally, which is good. Being still relatively young, I've only been in the corporate sector, you know, for a few years now, and it's given me the opportunity to earn you know, significant income on the side, as well as, you know, 
job opportunities and stuff like that, um, which I might have something more to say about in the coming months. Um, so, nice yeah. little teaser, yeah. little teaser. <laughs> yeah, what's that called? Like an Easter egg or something? A little yeah. Easter egg, yeah. Exclusive, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been really fun. It's something I'm really passionate about. Like I've always enjoyed writing um, and kind of, I don't like saying educating because that sounds kind of dominating, but just, you know, just like allowing someone to understand something better, I think is the core value add that a lot of readers get from it. So if I can continue doing that, then it's all good. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's all the questions we have. Connor, thank you for joining us. Where can people find you? What's your Twitter handle? Yeah. So my Twitter handle is investment talk with two K's on the end and links to like everything else I do should just be in my bio on my Twitter account. So perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Connor. Cool. Thanks. Welcome back in. Thanks again to it for coming on. Uh, but next we have hot water. I have three. Uh, I got two. Okay. I'm going to go first. Uh, clubhouse is in hot water because I listen in on a few spaces this weekend uh, you have access now huh yeah i guess you're not an iphone user so uh user. update hasn't come up update does not come in on my galaxy device they're kind of cool has a better camera but they're pretty cool i mean i didn't have it was one with like a thousand people so i didn't speak up but listening is kind of fun uh i mean there's there's one with rich greenfield involved it's kind of cool nice um but so definitely they got it right it's better than fleets at least yeah, well, so, yes. I mean, anything's better than... F- Fleet sucks, okay? So that was the <laughs> yeah. worst product rollout ever. Um, but the... Uh, I mean, I haven't used Clubhouse, so I guess maybe I shouldn't say that they're on hot water, but if Spaces does well, I have no inclination to use Clubhouse. Yeah, we'll see if they can do it, but... Yeah, I don't know. I think, like... Uh, I hate to be the constant contrarian, but I'll fade Clubhouse. I'm f- I'll fade it hard. Podcasts for the one, you know. You're what? I'll fade at Clubhouse. Like, uh, you know, everyone likes Clubhouse. You know, I'm f- everyone seems to be thinking, whoa, this is a new thing, billion-dollar valuation. I, I disagree. <sighs> Classic. Classic contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, second one is kind of derivative off that. Scott Galloway haters are in a little bit of hot water because Twitter has been on a tear, and he is a shareholder a long time. Uh, and he got a lot of crap for it. Um, um, yep. And I mean, he gets more crap for his bearish takes, but he, he doesn't got crap short for this take yeah, too. Yeah, he doesn't short it, short stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's always been wrong about Tesla, Robinhood, and Peloton. Those are clear mistakes, but he doesn't like short, so it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, the people with the anti Galloway portfolio, most of those people like are really smart. I love following their new ideas and stuff, but you got to admit, this guy put ten million dollars on the table on Twitter, and it might turn into a hundred million. Like, you gotta yeah. stop talking about him. Yeah, I mean, he, he can buy an island in the Caribbean with this investment. <laughs> like, I don't think he cares that you have the anti-Galloway portfolio true. at this point. All right, third one here: uh, short seller haters are in hot water. Oh, and you know, good we, for good reason. Yeah. So once again, uh, this week a short seller was has basically proved its worth. You know, because I mean there are a lot of people that are like short sellers serve no value that kind of thing. Whatever. It's a take I disagree with. But um, the CEO of MyMed X. I might be saying that wrong. (laughs) I think it's Memetics. Memetics. I think so. All right. Well, sorry. But uh, Parker (laughs) Parker Petit is the CEO. He's going to jail. 
so I guess I'm just on a bad articulation day today. Uh, he is going to jail. He was convicted of securities fraud. He'll be in there for a year. And three years ago, Mark Cahotas went to a shareholder meeting and called him out in front of everyone. Mark Cahotas is sort of a famous short seller. If you haven't watched the video, go do it because it was electric. Probably yeah. one of the most entertaining things I've seen in a long time. The energy, the, ener- the energy was in the room must have just been he awesome. He walked up to the stage. <laughs> And like security had to pull, like remove him, and then he had to he stayed, and he was just shouting the whole time, and it was great, That's and funny. he was proved right. It's like in the Big Short when he goes, "I got to stand for this," you it know, was, and he does yeah. the the thing about where did we ever get so far, you know? And the I think the funniest thing was the look on the shareholders' faces that were like, I mean, there were like real shareholders there in front of him, sitting in front of him, like that didn't know about it, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Oh man," because he kept asking questions like basically with his short case uh, sort of citing the concerns and potential fraud. Yeah, it was a complete fraud, right? I'm not sure exactly what the fallout was. uh, Enron or Theranos? Is it real fraud or just partial fraud? I know that that he, like, refused to hire an independent auditor. Ah. And then, like, someone else in the room was finally like, yeah, why won't you do that? He's like, listen, (laughs) if I was a fraud, I would have been figured out by now. Three That's, years later. Then they, they were, they were, uh, gosh, what was I going to say? Oh, I mean, another one he found out, or was this a Chano's one? Wirecard. Remember that one from this summer? Oh, man. Do you know, did you wa- read that story? Uh, partially. Well, C- I mean. The whatever, the CFO, he's gone. They can't find him. Yeah, that one's insane. Guess who was an investor in Wirecard? Who? <laughs> Reminds with a. Ark. Yeah. <laughs> A-R-K. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. What do you have? All right. G's culture. This is from an account E W E Deming. I don't know. If oh gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't. He's always got provocative pictures. Yeah. I don't know picture. if that's like just a anonymous account or if it's actually her. Whatever. This is a very funny anecdote though from the new GE Tell All book. Uh, if you've heard of Jack Welch, uh, his reputation now is taking a little bit of tumble. Um, I guess I'll try to read this. We might cut it if it's too long, but it's really funny. Uh, he says, quote, We had to brief Jack, so the president of the appliances division, the CFO, and I headed to GE's Connecticut headquarters. In the boardroom, about 20 guys sat around a huge table with Jack at the head. My boss gave a few remarks, as did the CFO. Then they turned to me to make a detailed presentation about how quickly the compressors would die. They were having an issue with you know, part for refrigerator refrigerators. I'd uh, I'd brought charts and graphs and a knowledgeable assistant, a GE statistician, who had asked to help me explain how the failure was going to unfold. The stats guy was in his early 60s, near the end of his career, and he was scared to death. I started off by describing how the repairs worked. I knew the details firsthand since all the managers, including me, had been donning coveralls and going out on repair calls. Uh, I talked about how we were trying to be as efficient as possible, but given that there were millions of affected fridges, the company would have to take a $500 million charge, then the biggest write-off in GE's history. I'll never forget Jack's reaction. reaction. Jack is Jack Welch, the CEO. Fellini is head back in his chair so violently that he was looking at the ceiling. He screamed and just says, like, ah, <laughs> like, like he's screaming to the heavens. The meeting got worse from there. Several people tried to appease Jack, you know, maybe if we sprayed zinc oxide on the compressors, they wouldn't fail, offered Walter Robb, uh, who ran GE's research lab. Jack's reply, Walter, shut the fuck up. 
Sorry, <laughs> don't want to say. I meant to believe that out. But uh, when Rob kept talking, Jack wouldn't have it. Shut the bleep up. He repeated, "Or I'm going to throw you out the window." <laughs> Great culture. Then the statistician I'd brought with us stood up to speak, but he was so mortified, <laughs> no sound could came out of his mouth. He was like the Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, total lockjaw. So I got up again and tried my best to explain the guy's failure curve charts and the logarithms he'd brought that predicted when the next wave of outages would hit. I was out of my depth, and Jack knew it. And he says, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he just started yelling. So sounds like uh, those you know, earnings per shares meetings, when they were trying to hit the number, <laughs> they oh were pretty intense. Gosh. Jack Welch has, uh, he used to be like the king of... He used to be like the Tim Cook or... Ooh, who's the Disney guy? Iger. Uh, Iger. And now it turns out he was a little bit of a psycho. Yeah, maybe it's just a bad day. Could have been a bad day, but... Uh, All right, number two. What number do Number two. Yeah, sorry, I think that was worth it for that story. Uh, credit cards are... A firm is releasing a, uh, quote, go. buy now, pay later card. So they're releasing a credit card. They're releasing a credit card that will... <laughs> replace buy, credit cards. Buy now, pay later. It's brilliant. It's so not a credit card. We're innovating. That's all I have on Are that. they going to put a rate on it? Maybe? Yeah, I don't you know. Think? Are they going to charge interest? That'd be smart. No, yeah, it's like Robinhood's uh, 3% cash management account. That yeah, that great. never happened. Okay, that stuff's um, great. buy, sell, hold. The theme this week is beneficiaries of low housing supply. So mm. for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, apparently the supply of houses is like an all-time low. We've been talking anecdotally with people, and they're, yeah. it's off the charts. Yeah, uh, house prices are soaring. Um, and so, But the problem is that there really aren't that many houses for sale. Like People are struggling to find sort of the house they want. And so... The three companies that I have here are uh, Home Depot, so they would kind of help with people revamping or stuff like that, kind of be a beneficiary that way. Yeah. KB Homes, which would be a home builder, sort of build the way out, and then uh, a REIT ETF. I don't Ooh, know, okay. just a general a, res- a residential REIT ETF. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You can you can play it three different parts of the value chain. I'd probably go since I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'll probably sell the home builder. I don't know anything about them. I'll hold Home Depot, although they are, this is just short term, but they are probably going to get hit by those lumber prices skyrocketing. Uh, I'm not sure if that if they incur the cost on that, but either way, they're going to have to pass that on to the consumer, and that could temper some stuff. Um, again, that could be out of my league, but I'd probably rather buy the residential REIT uh, since I have no... I don't think I have any sort of expertise or knowledge about that industry, so yeah. I might buy the home builder. I feel like you kind of got to <laughs> go, build your way out here. Go, uh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense if their if their balance sheet's good, you know. I mean, what do you think's driving the low? Uh, are people just moving out of the city and low mortgage rates? They feel like they can just buy yeah. their time horizons are forever. Everyone's got a thirty year mortgage. Yeah, everyone's been refinancing too. I think the combination of low mortgage rates. Remote work. And remote work is pushing everyone back to want to get a big house, yeah. <laughs> get some acreage, you know, get a plot <laughs> of land. Uh, I think everyone, I mean, that's, Real not a, asset. that's not a bold take. I think a lot of people are in concurrence with that, but the supply catching up with demand is going to be, it's going to be interesting to see who benefits from that. Maybe it'll be the home builder. Yeah. 
be cool. I'd be buying the home builder, I think. Yeah. And if you're if you're you hold the rate because if you don't know enough about real estate, it's probably best to go with some, you know, yeah. hand it to someone who does. The uh yeah. But if you're selling a home right now, that's that's gotta be pretty nice. Now, yeah, but then you think that, but then what if supply goes down again? Further, True. and then you can't buy a new home. Yeah, that's always confused me about the people that are like, well, your home's part of your equity, you gotta buy. And I always think like, well, you always gotta live somewhere. So Because you could you, rent for a few years, but then you're hoping the market kind of crashes. Yeah, I mean, you gotta buy, you gotta live somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. So if you sell a home, it's not like you're realizing that gain unless you decide to rent. Yeah, okay. Whatever. Anecdotal evidence, uh... I have two. I have two. Not as really well. that entertaining, so sorry, listeners. But <laughs> Cacao M, uh, I'm not sure who they are. I don't uh, either. But they are a band, I think, in South Korea. They could not reach a deal with Spotify. Oh, their their la- their label, or is it just them? It might have been a label. Either Cacao M is the band, or they oh, are or a the, label. I'm not okay. sure. Um, but it's sort of a big, popular name in South Korea. They did not reach a deal with Spotify. Do you think they will learn here soon what happens? <laughs> As a Spotify shareholder, anyone that's walked away has come back. That's true. And you know what? The funny I was looking at the mentions and it was backlash all against Cacao M or whatever. So it wasn't, you know, back in whenever it was when Taylor Swift walked away, everyone was like, "Yeah, you know, more power to her, her." Good for her. Uh, and then she came crawling back when you realize that the entire audience is on Spotify. So, I mean, can you build a successful... It's hard to be a successful artist without being on Spotify, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, as a bull, we own shares of Spotify, so I would agree with all those statements. Maybe, it's, maybe be, it's less prominent in South Korea. Yeah, because they just entered that market for sure. Uh, but it's a K-pop band. I'm yeah, sure. they get in. The, I mean, it gets in the international exposure, though. Uh, I think it'll be an interesting time. This will be an interesting event for Spotify for sure. It, we'll see how much. I don't know. You never see the insides of the deals, so it's hard to tell. But it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's another one of these, you know, people trying to resist. Um, and. I, I'm not saying I know what's going to happen, but it'll just be interesting to see you know, how Spotify deals with it. Okay. Uh, did you watch the Roblox Investor Day? Yes. Very good. Very exciting. Bullish. Yeah. Direct <laughs> listing is in what? Eight days? Eight days. Uh, I don't expect it to go out at any valuation that makes sense, but the company seems good. It seems great. Everyone, everyone's been saying this, so we're not saying anything crazy here, but it's... I mean, I love that they're keeping everything in-house, too. They're even making their own GPUs. We should maybe try to craft a bear thesis, like a really prominent bear thesis, you know? Get True. people talking try to <laughs> Yeah, so the evaluation comes out. Good for Altimeter, though, getting in there early. I was pretty jealous that oh. they got in that pre-IPO or pre-direct right. listing. What, uh, what do you have? Okay, short ones. Verizon is planning to integrate sports betting onto Yahoo Sports and Yahoo Fantasy Sports. Do you think this has any chance of success? Yahoo is? Yeah, trying to integrate sports betting and stuff Mm -hmm. like that into Yahoo Sports and Yahoo Fantasy Sports. Yeah, I do. I'll tell you why. Because when I was like 12 and they did the million-dollar bracket challenge, I was all in. So I I built like 12 brackets. And so, you know... They've got the reach. They've got the excitement, the allure. 
they should probably start with the March Madness tournament, go from there. The, uh, yeah, but no, yeah. I don't think they stand a very good chance. They don't? Honest. No. It, it, there's a lot of people throwing money at this. Reminds us of uh, the show that will be coming out Thursday, but we already recorded it, about Evolution Gaming. Uh, I know the price is expensive, but compared to all the companies going after like sports betting, betting which seems like a total commodity... Uh, and you know Yahoo being another one now, it's going to be investing millions of dollars into that. It seems like you'd much rather own the picks and shovels. I don't know if I'd call it a commodity. What's the difference between any of the apps? I think Barstool's got the only difference. Yeah, probably. Because, probably. But the actual offering itself might be commodity. That's not repeat. That's not repeatable though. Yeah, that's true. Barstool's like a one in. They kind of stand alone because of the yeah community. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that lets them win, but again, it seems like there's a lot of money coming after this. Who's going to power it? Potentially Evolution Gaming. Now, <laughs> I know Evolution Gaming doesn't do sports betting right now, but... All right. You know. Anything else? Uh, Coinbase is planning to go public at a reported valuation of $100 billion. $100 billion Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be... Uh, that's so much. That's way too much money. Uh, and uh, Wait. Yeah, you got it wrong. There's only 21 million out there, but they must have. So Schwab's worth like 60 billion dollars, right? This must mean that Coinbase, a brokerage, has twice the AUM as Schwab, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, you know, there's so much takes on it, and here's what I don't understand: is like, why are they worth? What is it? Ten? How much is how much is Bitcoin worth? Well, it's a little different because there's a lot of cryptocurrencies out there, but yeah, but Bitcoin's sort of the big one that's bought and sold, isn't it? It's the number one. Yeah, there's also Ethereum. There, there's some that are meaningful for sure, but yeah, Bitcoin's number one. What? It's like a trillion market cap. Oh no, Schwab has a market cap bigger as big as that. Never mind. Ah, uh, your take is it's ruined. Void. My joke, my joke was ruined, but it's about the same, I think. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Why aren't their commissions going to go down? I think I saw Brad. I'm going to steal this from Brad Freeman. Uh, why aren't Why aren't their commissions going? Why would they? Why aren't their commissions going to go to zero? Like like Robin? Yeah. How is that not a commodity? Like it's total commodity. Cash App's Bitcoin service could probably IPO at a hundred billion dollars right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They could totally it's a spin-off value creation. Oh God. But. You know how people have been trying to identify what an AOL time mer- Warner merger could be? You know, like legacy player with the new upstart that doesn't make any sense for like kind of the bubble stuff? I think a Coinbase Schwab merger would be a total like AOL time mo- Warner. Barf. I know, barf, because it would be a total value destroyer. But that, you know, something like that. I mean, dude, Coinbase, maybe I'm missing something because it said their operating margins were great. But, oh man, like. I don't know. Aren't commissions all going to zero? Am I crazy? Yeah, I don't understand how that doesn't get pressure from competitors. I do. It doesn't make any sense to me. But each right. week, I feel like I'm losing my mind more and more. Okay. Well, maybe you are. That's going to do it for <laughs> yeah. this week's show. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, IT, for coming on. As always, use our code CCM at checkout. Seven invest. Uh, we are general partners at Arch Capital, so uh, us or LPs may have. Uh, interest in the securities discussed on this podcast we're also not financial advisors so anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation thank you guys for listening we'll see you next time